Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 5. And let's pray. Father, we come at the beginning of this study through Proverbs 5, parts of it, wondering what you might do if this many people hearing these kinds of messages took them really to heart. What would happen if we decided to take words written on a page that we believe to be your word, inspired by God, preserved through time? It makes sense that you who created life, you who invented marriage, you would know exactly how it ought to work and work well. And so, Father, we submit ourselves to you, asking that you would search our hearts and cause us to put our defenses down, walls that we have erected down, so that when we hear truth from your word and principles that clearly emerge from the text itself, that we would not marginalize or rationalize, but we would evaluate and by your grace, by your strength, apply that our lives, our relationships might be fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a woman who was feeling lonely in her marriage. Her husband made an appointment at a counselor's office. The counselor was a trained psychiatrist, trained to listen and to make an evaluation. And as he listened to the couple describe their relationship, eventually the counselor said to the couple, the treatment that I prescribe for you is quite simple. The doctor stood up, went over to the man's wife, picked her up, embraced her in his arms, and gave her a big kiss. Then he stepped back to see that woman blush, swoon, smile, took her completely off guard. And he said to the husband, you see, that is all that it really takes to put zing back in your marriage. The husband, watching the whole time, absolutely expressionless, said, Great, Doc, I can bring her in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> Did that husband have a clue as to what was needed in that marriage? No, romance had left that relationship a long time ago as it does too many relationships that start out well but don't continue or end up that way. What begins with flowers and breakfast in bed and love notes and opening doors for the girl of a, one's dreams can end with couples sleeping back facing each other or in separate rooms, sweatpants and slamming doors on each other. In the next few weeks, starting today, we want to talk about the sensitive topic of sex in marriage. Its place, its priority. However, sex cannot be discussed by itself because it is related to every other part 
of a couple's relationship. It never stands alone. It's more than just adding a little creative spice and sizzle. You got to have the steak there first. You have to have something to build on. The fifth chapter of Proverbs, along with a few of the other of the Proverbs, are words from a father to a son. I like to see it as dad giving his son the talk that all dads need to give their sons. Where they came from, how things work, how relationships work healthy and in an unhealthy way. I heard about a little boy who asked his mother where he had come from. You know, all boys and girls say, well, how did I get here? Where did I come from? What's the process? And uh, so he said, where did I come from? Where did you come from? And mom gave some lame story about a white feathered bird who brought him to their doorstep. And that's how she got here as well, which was confusing to the little boy. So later on, the same little boy asked his grandmother the same question and got a variation of the bird story. So later on that day, out on the playground, uh, that little boy said to one of his friends, kind of looking around furtively, and he said, you know, there hasn't been a normal birth in my family for three generations. <laughs> on the other hand, Solomon, who gives us the Proverbs by and large, gives us the straight scoop. And in chapter 5, verses 1 through 14... He describes the disastrous effects of sexual promiscuity before and after marriage. But verses 15 through the end, verse 23, are the delightful results of marital intimacy. And that's what we want to focus in on this morning. Those last verses of this chapter, beginning in verse 15. The theme is how to have a love affair with your spouse. Let's look at verse 15. He writes poetically, Drink water from your own cistern, and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be your own, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. Briefly put, sex in marriage is like a flowing stream. Sex outside of marriage, promiscuously given before or during a marriage, is like drinking polluted water from a sewer. One will delight, the other can destroy. One is a stream, the other is a swamp. Or look at it this way. Sex is much like that dark soil in your garden, if you have a garden. If you have a garden, that dark potting soil, that um, nutrient-laden, rich, dark soil that looks so great in your garden. You put that on your white carpet? Not so much. Out of place. Dirty. 
Or it's like a fire. Inside of a fireplace, it gives warmth and satisfaction. It's delightful because it's contained within proper and safe parameters. Take the fire outside of the fireplace. It could destroy your house. So today and next week, we want to look at how to have a love affair with your spouse. And there are several principles that will emerge from the text. We always do that. This is exposition. What does the text reveal? Today, I want to give you three. And they could be summed up by three words. Covenant, enjoyment, commitment. Covenant, enjoyment, and commitment. I take you back to verse 18 for a moment to look at the first principle, which is magnify the mutual covenant. Notice in verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Now, these are not words that are limited to the experience of youth or newlyweds. It's simply this. The covenant that is made in one's youth that will last throughout an entire lifetime, summed up by the phrase, to the husband, the wife of your youth. The wife that I have today, Lenya, is the wife of my youth. Now, I am not a youth, but I was a youth when I married her. In those days, uh, people were married around age 14, 15, or 16. Uh, They didn't choose each other. Their parents made the choice long before they could even choose often. So they kind of came into this commitment, but the commitment was made in one's youth. So the term, the wife of your youth, implies a covenant. That's the word I want to zero in on. It's not written in the text, but it's implied by the text in the phrase, the wife of your youth. The idea that he's speaking of here is a monogamous, lifelong relationship. I read a bizarre news story some time ago about a man who married his TV. I'm not joking. There's a 40, there was a 42-year-old man named Mitch Hallen. He was Australian, living in England, who had two divorces. And on Valentine's Day, a few years back, he decided to marry Sony Widescreen. It was presided over by a priest. He had a dozen of his friends there. Rings were put on top of the television set, two gold rings. And he said, the article said, he took vows of high fidelity. Sort of a spin on fidelity. And this is what he said after two divorces and failed romances. He had given up saying, quote, my TV gives me countless hours of pleasure without fussing, fighting or back chat. Close quote. Well, sure, Mitch, anybody can watch TV. It's a lot easier to watch TV than to work through the problems of a marriage. But Mitch, let me ask you a question. Who's going to love you when you're old and gray? Ain't going to be Sony. In fact, your model will be replaced, I doubt, no doubt, before too long. I was also looking at some interesting places that people were getting married. You know, it's sort of fashionable now to not get married in a church, but hey, let's like bungee jump and in midair we can say vows to each other. Or in airplanes or balloons or a number of places that are creative. But I read about 12 couples who got married on a roller coaster. And I actually read it and I thought, how appropriate. (laughs) Right? Up and down, up and down. Woo! Woo! For a lot of people, that is marriage. It's a roller coaster. It's not stable. It's not steady. So when I read that, I thought, 
How do you stabilize a marriage? What is the secret to stability? It can be summed up in one word. Covenant. Covenant. Have a covenant marriage. Now that word covenant is a Bible word. It's used over 300 times in the Old Testament. It's a word that means an agreement with binding force. An agreement, typically a formal agreement with binding force. That concept of a covenant runs through Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's like a crimson thread. God is a covenant God. God's people are covenant people. The Bible is a covenant book. And marriage, according to the book, is to be a covenant. A formal agreement with binding force. For example, in Proverbs chapter 2, we read, Wisdom will save you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant that she made before God. What that means is, a couple makes vows to each other, they're in covenant with each other, but... There's a third party that nobody seems to recognize often, and that is God enters into the marriage covenant. Then in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord says, She is your partner. She is the wife of your marriage covenant. That formal, binding, lifelong agreement. Somebody imagined a conversation that Adam might have had in the garden with God. All the animals were brought by God, and Adam checked them out, named them all. But the Bible says, among the animals there was not found a helper that was suitable for him. So in this imaginary conversation, uh, Adam said, God, it's not that I'm like ungrateful or anything. These animals are cool, and it's not like I don't like animals. But I'd really like someone more like me, only different, soft and tender and beautiful and sweet. To which God replied, well, something like that's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam replied, well, what could I get for a rib? Now, covenant marriage is not like that. You can't go in partly to this. You have to go all in. It's a total commitment of yourself. Marriage is a covenant. Covenant means a commitment. And it's a choice that you make, not just on your wedding day, but it's a choice that you make every day. A covenant marriage is a marriage without an escape hatch, without a back door. You enter into the relationship and all the doors and all the windows are shut and locked. That's why we ask couples to go through a series of counseling sessions before they get married so that on their wedding day they are able honestly before God to say until death do us part. Not until debt do us part. Not until feelings do us part. Not what will stay together till you get old and ugly do us part. But until death do us part. That's a covenant marriage. Don't misunderstand me, please. I am not saying that a lifelong monogamous relationship will solve all of your problems. In fact, many more problems begin right there. But I am saying this. Intimacy begins and safety begins when you enter into that permanence. You go into the situation knowing this is permanent. This is a covenant. 
That's where safety begins. That's where intimacy begins. It was Ruth who said to his mother-in-law, her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you will go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Those are covenant words. In Hebrews 13, God says to us, his people, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Those are covenant promises. But we live in an era where people look at marriage and they want to test it first. They want to live together first. They want to test the waters first. They want to get intimate first. They want to see if it works first. We call these tire kickers. These are test drivers. That is not a covenant relationship. And know this. This is what you ought to know. All of the good research shows that the most successful marriages are those entered into with a sense of permanence. Two sociologists in a recent study say people living together first are more apt to fail in their marriage than couples who move in after they say their vows. Citing one article, studies show based on 50 years of data that couples who live together before marriage have a 50% greater chance of divorce than those who don't. Those who cohabit also have a less satisfying and more unstable marriage. Why? Research has found that those who had lived together later regretted having violated their moral standards and felt a loss of personal freedom to exit out the back door. Furthermore, and in keeping with the theme of marital bonding, they have, listen to this phrase, stolen a level of intimacy that is not warranted at that point nor has been validated by the degree of commitment to one another. When I read that little phrase, stolen a level of intimacy, it triggered something in my mind. I want you to see how closely related that is in research to what the Bible says. Turn with me to Proverbs 9. Just go right a couple blocks. Proverbs 9. Interesting phrase appears in Proverbs 9 about this. Verse 13. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat by the highest places of the city to call those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Interesting, isn't it? The author says after research, they feel like they've stolen a level of intimacy. The clamorous, foolish, promiscuous person says, stolen water is sweet. Yeah, it tastes good going down perhaps, but later on is bitterness. So that's the first covenant. That's the first word. Magnify the mutual covenant. The second word is enjoyment. That's part of the text as well. Maintain your marital enjoyment. Now, I'm going to take you back to verse 18, and we'll slow down a little bit, and we'll look at all those verses that we just read that make some of us blush. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer, as a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times, and always be enraptured with her love. 
For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? Contrary to popular belief these days, Hollywood did not invent sex. God invented sex. Sex was God's idea. And can I just say, it was a great idea. It was a great idea. Everything that God did, God looked at and said, that is good, and this is part of it. C.S. Lewis said, pleasure was God's idea, not the devil's. Now, the devil likes to hijack what God does. But when the Lord created man and wife, He put them together, and the Bible says He made them male and female, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. And you shouldn't be ashamed either. In that vulnerable, exposed position in front of your spouse... The marriage bed, says the writer of Hebrews, is undefiled. Now, at the same time, I will admit my own awkwardness on my wedding day and my honeymoon. But I, I, wanna, I just want to tell you a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> when, uh, when my wife and I got married on a Southern California summer day, we decided to take our honeymoon up north towards Santa Barbara, a place that we both love. I had lived at the coast. She didn't live far from it, so we just made our way up the coast. Well, on the way, we decided that we would stop at uh, a couple places, Oxnard and Ventura, which are coastal towns. And the reason we did is because Lenya's grandfather was uh, at one time in the hotel business so he could get deals. And so he got us our first night in a hotel close to the coast in Oxnard, California, free. So I said, hey, if it's free, it's for me. Right? You're young and just married. It's like, I'll take it. Well, he booked the honeymoon suite in this hotel. I didn't know what that meant. I said, great, awesome. Go into this hotel, get the key to the honeymoon suite. And I just thought I was in a horror movie. The door opened. I looked down at pink carpet. I look around and I see statues, gold-painted cherubs. Naked angels, basically, all over the room. Weird-looking lamps. And the wallpaper was velvet. Red and gold velvet wallpaper everywhere. And then, to top it all off, above the bed, a mirror. So, I know what the Bible says. I knew what it said, but the naked and unashamed part was sort of tough to get over in that environment. But enough said. Let's go back to the text. Notice in verse 15 and verse 18, actually smattered throughout the text, are very important words that describe the satisfaction, the sexual satisfaction and delight in a marriage. Words like cistern. Cistern was a hole carved out of the rock to hold water that would refresh the family. The word well or streams or fountain, fountains, all of these describe the delight, more of which we'll talk about next time. The Song of Solomon describes the wife as a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams. That speaks of marital delight, marital enjoyment. Maintain marital enjoyment. What's the purpose of sex? There are two. They could be summed up by two words. Babies and bonding. 
babies, number one, that's procreation, that's reproduction. God said to the husband and wife, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But second is bonding. Not reproduction, not procreation, but satisfaction. Nothing binds a couple more closely and deeply together as this act. That's why words are used here like satisfied and enraptured. But sex is more than a physical act. It involves the total emotion, intellect, and spirit of a person. That's why when the Bible describes sexual intercourse, you know what word it uses? The word no. Did you know that? No. Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew his wife and she conceived. In other words, they had sexual intercourse and she got pregnant as a result. That's how the Bible uses the term. Because sex is a means of getting to know each other in the deepest possible way. But sexual intimacy can never be separated from covenant unity. I want to bring something up here. Sexual problems that people have in their marital relationship are often not sexual problems. They're indicators of deeper problems, other problems. Because as I said, you cannot separate sexuality from all of the other parts of a relationship, including emotion. You can't do that. So sexual problems are often indicators of other problems. If you've ever been in a car where a light goes off on your dashboard... That's an indicator. Now, you probably don't see a light going off in your dashboard and think, bad dashboard. Got to replace my dashboard. No, it's an indicator that there's a problem elsewhere other than your dashboard. Right? It's like you need water or oil or brake fluid. There's another system going on. Now, you can jiggle the light or tap the light, or if you wanted to, take a sledgehammer out and smash the light to get rid of the indicator. But that would be foolish. You could ruin your car. So it is in this area. James Peterson writes, Conflicts, quarrels, bitter words will in time have an adverse effect on sexual harmony. One reason why it appears that sexual adjustment is difficult to achieve is that failure in any one or several other major areas of married life is reflected in physical relationships. Generally, a couple which has achieved a satisfactory cooperative framework in which to face all of their problems will find a minimum of difficulty in coming together sexually. Let me loosely translate what we just heard. If you want a healthy, vibrant sex life in your marriage, try a little tenderness the other 23 and a half hours of the day. You can't separate one from the other. Let me throw something out at you. Women are crockpots. Men are microwaves. You get what I'm saying? Men heat up very quickly. Women take time to do so. Men are visually stimulated and get stimulated very quickly just by something that they see. doesn't even require touch. Just visual stimulation. They're heated up. That's why it's important for a man to be very careful what he looks at or what he thinks about. Men are microwaves. Women are crockpots. They're not as stimulated instantly or by sight, visually, like a man is. She responds to 
a tender, soft, meaningful touch, kind words, acts of tender kindness throughout the day. So physical enjoyment can't be rushed. It has to be cultivated tenderly. And if a husband treats his wife kindly just at the end of the evening, just so he can get sex out of that relationship, I will guarantee you resentment will set in and that woman will feel abused and will doubt the sincerity of that man's love. So enjoyment physically and enjoyment emotionally go hand in hand. And both husband and wife need to know that. Let's close this off with the third word, and that is commitment. Covenant, enjoyment, the third is commitment. And here's the principle, make a spiritual commitment. Verse 21. After all that he writes to his son about sexuality in a marriage, he says, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. Get what that means? God knows everything. God sees everything Talk about intimacy. Talk about vulnerability. Imagine living with that in mind. Imagine what life would look like if you lived with that spiritual knowledge that God just heard the words I said to my wife. God knows the thoughts I'm thinking right now toward my husband. He's watching it. He's carefully weighing it. He's a part of this covenant. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Bring God into your marriage. Bring Him in. And leave him there at the center. Bring him into the kitchen. Bring him into the bedroom. Bring him into the living room. And live with that kind of accountability. Because people who make a spiritual commitment to his lordship will find it easier to say no to sin and easier to have more stable, satisfying marriages. Did you know that spiritually minded people have better marriages than those who are not spiritually minded? You're going, of course I know that. But did you also know... That intimacy is greater and sexual pleasure is higher in such spiritually minded families. The research shows that. Two researchers from family life seminars conclude that Christians generally experience a higher degree of sexual enjoyment than non-Christians. Now before you think, well that's just Christian research. What about real research? You know, that's how some people think. No, secular, real research. Okay, Red Book Magazine, a secular magazine published the sexual pleasure survey and showed the preferences of 100,000 women, quote, they say, quote, sexual satisfaction is related significantly to spiritual belief. With notable consistency, the greater the intensity of a woman's spiritual convictions, the likelier she is to be highly satisfied with sexual pleasure in marriage, close quote. That's because every spiritually minded man and woman understands God invented this. It is good and I am going to enjoy it to the max within the parameters of the fireplace. I'm going to, in the fireplace, let it burn and never take it out. So to sum up these three principles, I give you this. Number one, don't leave God out of your marriage. It's his marriage too. That's how he sees it. It's his marriage too, not just yours. He's part of that covenant. Number two, don't neglect each other's needs physically. Don't neglect each other's needs emotionally. They are hand in hand. And they are meant to be. And finally, to be a good husband, to be a good wife, 
you first must be a good Christian. I want to close with a true story. I found it fascinating. A guy by the name of Jim Newick was with his wife walking up in Spirit Lake, Washington years ago. This couple was with another couple, so there were four of them, and they were hiking, and they were walking, and it was pristine, it was beautiful, the fir trees, the clouds, the blue sky, just picturesque. Everything was awesome except for Jim. What was going on inside Jim was a storm, because Jim had the burden of knowing that he had, at that very moment, an active malignant tumor growing inside of his body. Well, this foursome, this, these two couples were walking and they came up to a, a, a big, beautiful waterfall and underneath the waterfall was this cottage and come to find out, it would look like, look like a postcard. The cottage was for rent. So the wife, Jim's wife, the man who had the tumor, Jim's wife ran into the cottage to book a weekend in the next several weeks. The cottage was booked for a year. For a year. She said, oh, well then then we'll reserve it for this time next year. Outside the cottage, Jim is just sweating. He's nervous. The fir trees don't look beautiful to him. The clouds aren't all that great looking to him. And he starts sweating and he gets very nervous. And the other couple says, Jim, what's wrong? And he said, listen, my life's hanging in the balance. My wife's in there making reservations for a year from now. I'm going to be dead a year from now. And told the couple about the tumor. It turned out that that man, Peter Newick, had it all backwards. One year later, he was alive and growing stronger. But the mountain, the cottage, the waterfall was gone. Mount St. Helens erupted, taking with it the buildings and the mountain itself. What seemed like strong and stable and forever was gone. What Peter Newick thought was temporary and frail and passing still existed. There's a spiritual principle in that little story. A lot of the times our focus is upon stuff. Now, here, now, right now. And we neglect the most important, and that is the relationships that we have. If you were to boil life down to its irreducible minimum, you'd have one thing. Relationships. Relationship vertically with God. Relationships horizontally with people. That's what life is at its irreducible minimum. How do I know that? Because I've been with many people on their deathbeds. And they usually don't talk about stuff, cars, sports, clothes. It's all about people. And you know where the regrets usually lie? With those people, those relationships. I have never yet had a man tell me on his deathbed, I wish I would have spent more time on the golf course. Never heard that. I never heard a guy say... I regret that I didn't spend more hours in my office away from my family. I never had a woman say, wish I'd have bought more clothes and shoes. 
But the regrets, the regrets that I have heard are the regrets of there wasn't enough investment, energy, time with God and with people. So as I mentioned last week at the end of the message, we are simply the summary of all of the choices we had made up to this point. The good news is that today we make new choices. And we become the summary of all the choices that we make from this point out. Make sure that the first choice you make is a choice to say yes to Jesus Christ and to put Him in the Lord of your life. And then let Him and that relationship with Him and His words, His principles pervade into every other area of your life. Well, Father, that is the time we are allotted. And these are the words we have considered. I'm always amazed at how clear and direct and up-to-date the Bible is that speaks about virtually every area of our lives. And when we look at the principles and when we draw them out from the Scripture and apply them to us, they they make sense. We know deep down they're truth. We just pray that you'd help us to walk in them. And once again, we pray for relationships, marriages, those who are dating, those who are finding difficulty in the first months and years of their relationship, others that are struggling after many years. There are as many unique issues as there are people represented here. And you know everyone intimately. And you love every person dearly. We pray that with the power of your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the principles of the Bible, and the help of other Christian friends around us, that ours would be stable, thriving, covenant relationships. I know, Lord, that I'm speaking now or or praying to you in the presence of people who have had broken lives and broken relationships. It doesn't mean that they're unuseful or unredeemable. Lord, the great news is that you take anyone, everyone, and you redeem the years the canker worm has destroyed, the locust has eaten. You give us newness and a do-over. And I pray, Father, for, for everyone who is hearing this, that they would take hope in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.